Inhale the cognitive dissonance. And exhale. Hi, I'm Morgan. <laughs> I'm Isabel. And this is Romance, a podcast about romance novels. About B. Did you? Did you? Hike! Was that good? What do they say? They say a number of things like one, two, three, hike. Hut, 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 hike. This is a podcast about a number of things. One, two, three, hike. This is a podcast about tequila. This is a podcast about secret eight-year-olds. This is a podcast about traumatic brain injuries. It's a podcast about the Mile High Club. It's a podcast about the Mile High City. Which is what I was referring to. (laughs) You know that that's like another thing too, though, right? No, is it? What other thing is it? I know it's another thing. It was a joke, Isabeau. (laughs) Way to fucking show up with your little pin needle and blow up the balloon of my joke. When your cynicism sounds earnest, it throws me really off. (laughs) I only have one way of sounding. (laughs) That's not true. About the Mile High Club. Wink. (laughs) Throws a brochure for Denver at you. JK, LOL. JK, LOL. (laughs) About customized jerseys. About the cult of sports. About being totally fine with it. It's just not you. Uh, But mostly, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And And ourselves. All right, this week, we are continuing our interview series with our second sports romance. Fumbled by Alexa Martin. Do you want to do the back of the book, or should I? I would love it if you would. Okay, here we go. Back of the book. A second chance doesn't guarantee a touchdown in this new contemporary romance from the author of Intercepted. Single mother Poppy Patterson moved across the country when she was 16 and pregnant to find a new normal. After years of hard work, she's built a life she loves. It may include a job at a nightclub, weekend soccer games, and more stretch marks than she anticipated. But it's all hers and nobody can take that away. Well, except for one person. Uh -uh -uh. TK Moore, the starting wide receiver for the Denver Mustangs. That's so on the nose. Dreamt his entire life about being in the NFL. His world is football, parties, and women. Maybe at one point he thought his future would play out with his high school sweetheart by his side, but Poppy is long gone and he's moved on. Mm. When Poppy and TK cross paths in the most unlikely of places, emotions they've suppressed for years come rushing back. But with all the secrets they've never told each other lying between them, they'll need more than a dating playbook to help them navigate their relationship. Zing zang. Zing zang. Yeah, so we chose this book. It was recommended to us more than once by Joanna Patinkas and by DJ Dresser. DJ did say that she liked Fumbled better than Intercepted, which is the first book of the playbook series. And so since reading, I went and checked out Alexa Martin's website. She's got another book out, the third in the series, and then she just released cover art for the fourth. So and it got optioned by stars for a series starring Lala Anthony. Oh, wow. I know. Lala Anthony, who blurbs 
the third book. So, well, that's nice. That's like roundhouse right there. Yeah, this is a powerhouse of a first series. No kidding. So what do you want to start with? I want to start with the fact that Alexa Martin is a former NFL wife. Yes. And I think that's a lot of where the initial speculation and desire to get into this series came from. Because as yeah. you said in our wonus about gossip, that this feels extremely truth adjacent. Yes. Yeah, it does. Um, which I, makes it all the more fun to read. Yeah. Just to reiterate, like one of the reasons I was so excited for this and that we ultimately chose to do two sports romances is because of all of the other legitimate reasons we offered, which are, you know, there were just so many of them them. It's so popular. It would feel like we were missing the mark if we didn't do a more independently published as well as a very like mainstream romance novel, which is certainly what this is. But also just gossip, just juicy, juicy gossip, just all that insider information. That's what I was craving, craving. And you're not alone. I think that's part of the reason why this book landed the way that it did and why this series has really struck a chord. Can we start off by talking about football? Please, let's talk about football. Or football American, as they say in France. (laughs) This is the kind with the helmets and the tackling. The kind with the CTE. Yeah, so I definitely want to talk about CTE in this novel, but I also want to talk about the sport of football because I don't care for it. Ah, okay. <laughs> As you all know, Isabeau and I rarely disagree. Ever. Isabeau <laughs> very much enjoys the spectacle of football. And okay. I have never been into it. Here's the thing. I had to consciously uncouple from the NFL in 2017. It was very hard. I grew up in Wisconsin where the Packers are more a religion than a team. After church on Sundays, we went home and watched the game and like that's how I had exclusive bonding time with my dad and with my brothers. That's how I had water cooler talk at various jobs where I felt like I didn't have anything else to bring necessarily to social conversations. Like you were always safe in Wisconsin talking about the Packers. It was a shared language. It was something that we all participated in to an insane degree. Also, Green Bay is such a weird place. It's like 150,000 people that has a pro team that doesn't have a full time ground staff because it's such an honor to shovel the field and sidewalks around the field. It's hard to explain how big the Packers are, especially like in Chicago where the Bears are very big, but like Chicago's already so big and has other professional teams. There's also something to be said for, so in Kansas City they have more than one professional sports team, Yep. but I would say the Chiefs loom so large. We even say Chiefs instead of Brave during the national anthem or other people do. That's true. The Chiefs are very big there. They're very big. I mean, there's just something about American football and I think we'll get into it when we talk about sports romance in general. You know, it's easy to say we have so many American football romance novels because it's such a big deal sport here. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, we had that question of like, why aren't there very many basketball romances? I looked up like most anticipated sports romances of 2020 and they had like a dozen under football and one series under basketball. And, you know, I think about those holding similar places of privilege, like the NBA makes a ton of money. All of the measures would say that those are comparable. But then whenever you get 
akin to romance. It's not. And more than that, a more obscure sport in the U.S., such as hockey, takes up way more shelf space. And so I have that question of why? It's not a direct one-to-one conversion, like popularity in the cultural zeitgeist to popularity in romance. And I think it has to do with physicality. I think it has to do with physicality. I would also hazard to guess, as we did in our preview, that it has to do with race, especially as it comes to hockey, where it's like you can have a pretty banal explanation for why there are so few people of color. Yeah. And I think like football can hit those marks as well to a lesser extent. But yeah, I think it's physicality. I think it's like a real space where you can have a discussion of Alpha without him being like a surf owning Duke or a panther turning, you know, paranormal creature. Right. It's a kind of acceptability of violence. Yeah, exactly. It's a violence. And it's also like we all collectively celebrate this violence. So you're Mm -hmm. not weird if you're like turned on by it or something because totally this is a violence that we can easily read as power. Right. And like, oh, isn't it the prowess of this kind of violence? And like you have to be like so fast and so tough and so this and so that. And it's just. Yeah, exactly. But I think what often gets forgotten and was certainly overlooked in the book Pucked is that an important part of being able to express yourself violently in this way successfully, like what's more important than your actual skill is your ability to take a hit. Yeah. And CTE, hot topic in romance, CTE. Mm-hmm. It's something we discussed in The Right Swipe by Alicia Ray. But I have to say, like where the chicken really came home to roost for me with our author's background in the NFL is how she treated CTE. Yeah. It felt very real and tangible through our characters because what this book did that I think The Right Swipe missed including, something that was, you know, not a part of their discussion of CTE, is that it creates a dangerous home yep. for the family members of the person affected by CTE. I think this book did such a good job. And like, that's one of the reasons why I had to stop watching the NFL was their disgusting and terrible stance on players who were hurting their domestic partners. Yes. But also like the lack of discussion around the connection between CTE. And that really came home in Kansas City when a young player killed his partner and then killed himself. It's just not fun to watch people really hurt themselves but like lives are truly torn apart and for money and that feels gross. Yeah and it's not just like the life of the player like the player isn't just making that choice for themselves. Right. They're making that choice for their families. Right. And the book makes the point repeatedly like there's no such thing as like a safe way to play football. There's no helmet. There's nothing that would protect you from that. One thing I really enjoyed reading was the heroine takes a hardline stance on not letting her son play tackle football. Yeah. And the hero does support her in that choice eventually, which and not even eventually, like he pretty quickly accepted it. And that was really nice to read. I would say like the nicest parts of this book to read were and this feels very strange to say in a romance, but like her being like strong mom. It's just the text of the story itself where she's like, Mm -hmm. you know, shut your mouth when you're eating. And like, no, of course, you're not going to play tackle football. If you want to play football, you can play flag football. And like, those are the terms. Yeah. And I think also like, the village building around her family. By the end of the novel, we know that they're choosing to be together because they want to be together. He's not offering her anything 
that is impossible to live without, which is my personal favorite kind of resolution is when the two characters are kind of independently okay. Yeah. And I thought this book did a really nice job of that. There's this point in the book really kind of later on where she goes to a game, even though she doesn't want to because of how violent it is. And she's so afraid, like, you know, she's got her heart in her throat watching TK play. And she describes the scene of being in the stands so clearly, like very clear that this author has been to many games. (laughs) And it brought me right back to like the games that I have been to. And like that weird feeling that you get in a mob that is just like everybody in your section is like cued to the same frequency. And it's like, oh, and like, as you said earlier in this episode, Morgan, it's not about how strong you are. It's about how fast you can get back up and how well you can take this hit. Get back up on the field. You just had your bell rung. What an amazing euphemism for a fucking concussion, right? <laughs> like, I think that is it. I think people, you know, on SportsCenter and stuff, they like to talk about all of the work that goes into the skill of being able to like make a tackle or to throw or catch a ball or to run really, really fast. But at the end of the day, the thing that's going to set you apart is your ability to take a hit, like your resilience, yeah. your yeah. stamina is what <laughs> really matters. And that stamina can like function in all sorts of clearly terrible ways where it's like you can play while you're hurt. There's a famous scene in Green Bay history, obviously the franchise I'm most familiar with, where Brett Favre played with two broken fingers and then later like his father died on a Saturday night and he played the game the next day. And like that's valorized in a way that shouldn't be like his dad died. He shouldn't have played. personal experience that comes to my mind has to do with boxing. This man from my hometown, he became a professional boxer. He has his, like, first fight on HBO. Like, Mm -hmm. big deal. And he's going, oh, God, what's that boxer's name? He's a really big deal. Floyd Mayweather Jr. And the guy from my hometown, he's doing really well in the beginning of the fight. And then he gets just walloped like Mm -hmm. he gets one good punch on his stomach and then he just goes in on his face and like doesn't stop when the ref interferes and I don't blame Floyd Mayweather he was like what like in his 40s and this 18 year old kid you will die like (laughs) just if we're basing this on stamina and so the guy from my hometown he ends up calling his own fight and everyone was disgusted Mm. and they walked up to him and his face is just hamburger meat like his beautiful Uh. beautiful face the announcer asked him like why he called the fight and he was like I just realized like I don't want to do this like have you heard these old guys like the way they talk like I just thought I don't want to do that I want to be able to like read and talk when I'm in my 50s he says through his like bleeding mouth it is like this young person had this like epiphany on HBO which is the same choice most people make Yep. They realize they can't get back up after a certain point. And sometimes they're in middle school, like when my brother got his hand broken. <laughs> and sometimes they're in the middle of a pro season. But everyone eventually dies that death. But you would think that he had said, I guess I realized boxing is dumb. It's stupid and I hate it. And everyone here wasted their money the way the crowd was just enraged at him yeah. for making that choice. For saying like, instead of dying for you, for nothing. I'm going to go and do something else now. Thanks so much. Bye. And I don't know what's happened to him since then, but I remember that so clearly and being like, yeah, thinking like, oh, yeah. So he made a good choice and everyone was just 
shocked. The shock was incredible. And like no one talked about it afterwards. No one wanted to discuss that like a 19 year old or something on national television was like, I just realized like this is killing me and I don't want to die for it. Right. Or like, you know, not only do I not want to die, but like I don't want to have a terrible thing like ALS or another traumatic, you know, deposits of brain tau, which prevent me from knowing my family and having Alzheimer's or even just like retinal detachment and going blind. I mean, the things that can happen to a very delicate brain. And I think this book also does the thing where it depicts that trauma in a real and tangible way without hitting you over the head with it. When our hero and heroine go on their first date and he has that really terrible reaction to finding out that she has a child. Yeah. Like to me, I was like, this is unforgivable. And I was like, I hate this guy. Like, I don't know how I continue on with the book. Yeah. And the book doesn't try to justify anything. And so I kept thinking like, oh, so this is just like his personality is that he's going to accuse her of being a gold digger and faking Mm -hmm. her child, you know, and stuff. And then by the end of the book, you realize like, oh, he's already exhibiting early signs of CTE, which is having, you know, that filter that says, you know, your reasoning is leaving you already. Yeah. What was so odd to me about his episodes of extreme anger is that we are so deeply in first person. We never get his perspective. We only have poppies. And her perspective is never one of fear. And it was weird to feel fear for her. It was like one of those moments where I felt like I was like reading over someone's shoulder where I was like, Jesus, Poppy, he could hurt you. Like maybe back up a step or like get out of this way because like the anger felt so big on the page, even in her perspective. But the fact that she never felt afraid felt very strange. Yeah. And like one of the ways in which the text was signaling, she's going to be okay. You don't have to worry. And I was like, I don't believe you. I'm very worried. Well, because so many times in romance novels, like they do depict this very toxic form of masculinity and they're like, cute, right? (laughs) And there was something like there was slippage there and the fact that she was really hurt by it and really Mm -hmm. shocked by it. But then she also like stuck with him through it, which was Mm -hmm. also kind of disconcerting. And I think you're exactly right. I think the book was trying to do the thing where it's like, it's going to be okay, right? Happily ever after is on the horizon. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was intentional on the part of the text but I think it also really effectively does depict like toxic masculinity and our willingness to accept it and then Mm -hmm. her realization that like oh something's really wrong yeah like he's sick kind of thing. Right. This isn't who I knew. Yeah. And she breaks up with him because of it. And she makes the point at the end of the novel, like, I told you I would never ask you to choose between me and football. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to give you the choice. I'm leaving. And I really found that so refreshing to read Mm -hmm. because I think so often as women, our capital is so low in relationships with men. Ultimatums are so tempting, right? Mm -hmm. As a woman in a relationship with a man, it's the hardest thing to resist, to be the kind of person to not do an ultimatum every time something's really important to me. Mm -hmm. And just to say, like, this is important to me, so I'm going to do it or not do it, you know, for Mm -hmm. myself is so hard. This has been super vague. Okay, let's talk about the general idea of an engagement ultimatum. Okay. People are really familiar with these. Yes. John Mulaney, I just watched his stand-up special, rewatched it, and he talks about <laughs> why I got engaged. And he's like, it's because the person you love tells you that you have to. <laughs> 
(laughs) or they're going to leave. And I think it's really hard to have this sense of self-worth to say, this person isn't giving me what I want. I can get it somewhere else. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, this person isn't giving me what I want. What can I bargain with? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's yourself like you use yourself as a bargaining chip to get a level of commitment and security. Yeah, I think that's right. Which makes sense in the context of marriage because it's a chattel agreement. But it also makes sense in the socialized world in which, you know, women are socialized as lesser beings who have to constantly make other people comfortable and having needs or having naked needs or expressing needs is something that you are often punished for because it makes you, God forbid, high maintenance or God forbid needy or God forbid a person with high expectations, like all of the ways in which this is really actually very pernicious. And what was really refreshing about this book is like, here is a heroine who understands her boundaries clearly yes and articulates them clearly at the outset sexy expectation she's like this is what I'm willing to accept this is what I'm not this is how I'm prepared to compromise this is how I'm prepared to meet you but like don't fucking cross it the stated consequences that she made at the outset one of the things that was really refreshing about this book was a heroine who fucking stuck to her boundaries after she'd articulated them and it's weird to say that out loud because like what a low fucking bar but like what a low bar And also, I think her choice not to objectify or commodify herself in that way was really refreshing because that is what you're doing. You're Mm -hmm. self-objectifying, you're self-commodifying. And also her ability to call off the contract to say, I thought I could handle this. I cannot. I'm excusing myself. Yep. Was very, very good. Yeah. I thought all of it was great. And like even the moments of where she's like really angry, like when he forgets to pick up their child from school and she leaves him this like insane voicemail which is like forget something fucker (laughs) and then she like shows up at his house to confront him about it and like the fact that she's enraged on behalf of her kid and she's like I let you into our lives like I didn't have to do that her boundary setting was actually quite enjoyable to read and like you know it's not as though those boundaries like are inflexible and it's not as though they ever come as a surprise which is also very nice like she states them out loud very clearly yeah so to provide context in the in the final act of the novel. Poppy's at a football game. She sees TK, the hero, take a really big hit and he gets sent to the hospital and she decides, I've seen all of this evidence of CTE. I don't feel comfortable having him in my life anymore if he's going to continue to play football, which he is. So I'm just going to excuse myself from the relationship. But he now knows he has a son, Ace. And so he continues to have some fatherly responsibilities, including picking the kid up from school whenever his mom is working. He forgets to do that. And here's a part that I enjoyed in the book. TK isn't responding to text messages or phone calls. She goes to his house to confront him. And the scene is set up like all the lights are on in the house. The car is in the garage. Mm -hmm. Like she knows he's there. And so I start thinking in my head like, oh, God, something's gone really wrong. Like he's fainted. And it hasn't like 
TK comes to the door. He looks good. He looks fine. He just forgot to pick his son up. And it was one of those things where it was like, it really rang true. Like, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I wonder why (laughs) men will always disappoint you in really big Baroque ways and it will be nothing to them. Yeah. I wonder why. And the process of forgiving that kind of stuff, like, I know that it's partially, it's supposed to be partially related to his CTE. Mm-hmm. But it's not one of those big, scary examples. It's one of those small, quiet examples. And the fact that like she's so ready to forgive him so immediately, was like part of it was like his male tears, where he's like, you don't think I hate myself now? And I was like, no, I don't think you do. And I think you need to do a little more self-flagellation before you're okay. Did I send you that TikTok of how to apologize like a man? I guess I'm just the worst boyfriend ever. I know. I just like... So true, though. I'll never offer you ice cream again. (laughs) Boys are so silly. They're worse than silly. That's true. And we've been trained to like, you know. To say it's silly. Yeah. Or like to just like give their feelings so much more weight. And so like even in that moment where he's like totally fine, there's no really good excuse other than his CTE, which the text is like hanseled and gretled for us quite loudly at that point. Yeah. So when he starts crying, I was like, fuck you, guy. Like, fucking come up with something more proactive than like, you don't think I hate myself already? And I'm like, no. And if you do right now... I don't. You just found out about it, so no. Yeah. Like, spend some time feeling bad. Yeah. And like, actually think about what I'm saying to you. Because all you're hearing is like, I'm a bad person. And not, here's what you did wrong. (laughs) Here's what you did wrong, and here's how you have to rectify it for the future. But that's not how they listen to other men. No, it's not. And it's almost exclusively how they listen to their female romantic partner. Um, Heterosexual relationships are trash. Like, they never really see you as an equal. How could they? Think about the, like, revolutionary thinking that is required for a man to see a woman as an equal. Especially when you're in a romantic relationship and all of the additional socializing and expectations that comes along with that. If I were his colleague and I pointed out something he did wrong, he would be less likely to pull that shit. That like, oh, I guess I'm the worst peer reviewer ever. Totally. And the thing is, is like as women in romantic relationships with men, we also reiterate our own subjugation. I want to press on this point just a little bit because I imagine that there are people listening who are like, of course men think women are equal and like, I am dating a feminist. And like, he self-identifies as a feminist. And like, I can hear them already. And I was like, you're right. It's different now than it was when Don Draper felt like he could like slap Betty around. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the fact that like, you're not equal in this part partnership because of socialization it's like who does the mental load at home who's doing the bulk of the grocery shopping or the grocery planning like that kind of bulk and how does it fall out like that and why living in the 21st century it's like yes women have made incredible gains femme-bodied people have made incredible gains however there's still so much work to do And it has to be at home. And like, that's where a lot of this is coming from when we talk about like the female third shift where it's like you have your full time job and then you come home to do the bulk of the childcare, the bulk of the housework, the bulk of the cooking, the bulk of everything else. And your romantic partner is included in that childcare because my God. Yeah. 
It's not babysitting when dad does it. Yeah. And it's also like you're still doing his laundry. Yeah. You're still cooking a meal for this other grown person. Right. Like you're still doing chores. And does he ask you to do chores? Or do you ask him? Right. And like, it doesn't matter if he hops to it because he didn't do it uninvited. Right. So that means that you had to notice the thing was dirty and then bring it to his attention and then ask him to do it. Think about like why he doesn't hit you. (laughs) Jesus. What's the reasoning that goes on in his head as to why he can't just Don Draper knock you around? Because Don Draper didn't really think like strategically. Okay. I'm going to hit Betty a little. Like, no, it was just a natural part. That was how he moved through the world. Yeah. And that was, what, like 50 years ago? Like, people are still alive. Like, my partner's grandfather was the same age as Don Draper at the same age, you know, and is still alive and still talks to him. Who knows what they talk about? No, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but like, what do you think the actual thought process is? Do you think he's like, I cannot hit her. She is an equal. (laughs) It's like, I just don't hit girls because I'm not a bad guy. And like, that's a signifier of bad dude. Who is he afraid of knowing he's a bad guy? Great question. Do you think he's scared you know he's a bad guy? He doesn't give a shit. I love my boyfriend. I don't think he gives that much thought to how I perceive him. (laughs) Like, because I'm fucking here, right? Why would he? Why would he? Why would he spare a thought for how I perceive him? That's so funny. Unless it's something that could be potentially emasculating. (sighs) And so, is it funny? And so... No, of course not. I think they're thinking about other people thinking they're a bad guy if they hit you. And this might sound like very accusatory people can function normally like this is normal functioning we're just not scratching the surface of it because an actual revolution hasn't happened because gender still exists right for all of it and there are people on all sides of the gender spectrum who are enforcing it and like that's one of the things that like this book was hard in some ways for me because it felt like as somebody who watched the NFL obsessively for decades one of the breaking points for me was when the Ravens player hit his girlfriend so hard that she was unconscious and the video leaked. And then he was suspended for three games. Is that when he dragged her onto the elevator? Dragged her off the elevator that he'd cold clocked her on to their hotel room. On the ground. Didn't even pick her up. Just dragged her. Yep. Just dragged her. And she came out after the game suspension. She's like, he's been punished enough. And I remember thinking, oh, no. Oh, did you cold clock him and then drag him around a hotel and then put that on national news? Did that happen? It didn't. Are you guys even Stevens now? (laughs) That's not what happened. Part of it is because they were family. She was tied to him economically. Like, this was going to affect their family and their ability to provide for their children. But it was also one of those moments where I was Mm -hmm. like, how we rationalize violence against ourselves to get through the world and like how we normalize violence to get through our lives. And more than that, how do we narrativize our relationships with men? Right. What are the stories, the actual stories we tell ourselves about their internality to make what their choices are acceptable? And then how does... A billion dollar industry fucking take that narrative and make it okay, broadly speaking, and palatable for 
millions of people. That was one of the breaking points for me where I was like, oh, this is an organization that doesn't care about women. No, but so few organizations do. Yeah. To go back to that point about Don Draper, is he not hitting you because he understands how like all violence is corrupted? Or is he also watching football? (laughs) Don Draper watched football. Yeah, it's not only that gender dichotomies are constantly being reinforced. It's the fact that violence is constantly being propped up. Yes. As a masculine, powerful, and desirable act. Yes. Was that heavy? This feels really heavy. Uh, I think it was going to always feel heavy. And I think that's one of the parts about this book that, like, for me, it couldn't escape the heaviness of what the NFL is. And that ultimately, like, this text really comes down hard against the NFL. Yeah, this text comes down hard against the NFL. It truly illustrates how violent and dangerous CTE is Mm -hmm. and how it doesn't just affect the player. Yeah. Whereas I feel in the right swipe, the greater concern was, like, self-harm. Yeah. This book really illustrates the community harm that's done with CTE and our fetishization of the NFL. Which made this book strangely heavy for uh, an escapist romance. (laughs) Well, certainly made the conversation strangely heavy for an escapist romance. I will just say yes, all men. Yep. Yes, all men. So the like believe all women hashtag that never really existed, but people want us to think existed. That the right wing wants us to believe existed so that they can tar us all with the brush of being whatever. Yeah, being wrong. And I was listening to a conversation about it on Studio 1A and they pointed out like a true feminist would never say believe all women because a true feminist would have a perspective of, you know, the white women who accuse black men of raping them, but take all allegations seriously and and research them. And I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, like the white women who accused black men of raping them and, and led to lynch mobs. Like if a man ever has something to gain from a rape allegation... <laughs> I would definitely look at it twice. Like with the Harvey Weinstein thing, like I could not find a man who could benefit from Rose McGowan saying like all I could see were women who stood to fail to lose a lot for making those allegations. I guess my point is distrust all men. Yes. I don't believe in believe all women, but I do believe in distrust all men because they haven't earned it. I think that's right. And I think that's one of the things about this book, especially since like the stakes of Poppy being a teen mom and then a single mom. It's not just her that's risking her heart in this relationship. It's truly like the happiness of her son Ace. And so like the way in which she has to negotiate the telling of TK of his son, but also telling of Ace about his father and like what boundaries she can set to sort of protect the expectation. And like one of the things that was really odd to me and potentially even my weirdest part is how fast TK was allowed to like sleep over in their house. Yeah. I'm glad that everybody's getting along so well. This seems really great. But also, like, what happens if you guys have a fight and TK doesn't want to be at your house? Like, yeah, that seems like a lot for a nine year old. One thing that I noted in this novel is how much it makes a place, a character, like a home, a rich lived experience in the novel Mm -hmm. in a way that I think people are constantly trying to do because of Jane Austen and no one achieves. And this book really achieved it for me. I imagined her, you know, living close to a park like we do, Mm -hmm. seeing the families walk to the soccer games with their folding chairs. At first, I was kind of annoyed with all the details of the home. But by the end of the novel, I really 
liked that that existed because I understood like as a locust of the novel and a, a place of safety. It just really worked. And I was struck by how well it worked because it rarely works that well in all of the Austin adaptations we've read. I totally agree. Thinking back, like when she's describing her kitchen and how she's assembled it over the course of several years, where like she talks about how she got her butcher's block island and like the subway tile that she spent too much on on the black splash, but is now one of her favorite parts. And I was like, this is way too much detail. But then like every time they were in the kitchen, I fucking knew what color the cabinets were and like what that backsplash looked like. And it was much easier for me. Like it felt very cinematic. Yeah. And so like that exposition was boring in some ways, but it really did make the house feel very much like a living lived in home, an oasis, an escape, a retreat, a space of real safety, which is why I think honestly my weirdest part is like how quickly TK was allowed into that space as like a space that could be his too. Yeah. The book gives just enough details to make it feel real enough to be your own home. Talking about like stuff like shoes by the door. Yeah. What kind of coffee machine it is the TV and like what channels are. Yeah. It doesn't overspend it. It just really tells you, you know, it's just nice. It was just really well done. It was. (laughs) And I think you're right. Uh, That weirdest part that they let TK into the home and so fully enmeshed him in their lives. Yeah. And just like the fast pace of it was just like a little odd. Although I will say that time felt very strange because like by the end of the novel, like there's a line that says like after months of this and I was like, whoa, I've only seen three dates and one sex scene. Like, what do you mean months? Months later. I think the intimacy volume felt like it was out of sync sometimes. What was your weirdest part? Oh, thank you. I thought you'd never ask. I was just going to say, yeah, forever. My weirdest part was that all of the villains were women. Ah, yes. Do we want to talk about our villainesses? Oh, the many-fold villainesses. So we know that Poppy's mother wasn't supportive, but we never see Poppy's mother. And we touch on the fact that she had a bad mom, but it never becomes like an issue that needs to be rectified in the novel. It's just kind of accepted. Mm -hmm. So first villain is Rochelle, who has a thing for TK, works with Poppy at the Silk Aerialist bar. Okay. Which I want to touch on. Rochelle gets Poppy fired by saying that since Poppy has a relationship with TK Moore, that is why the Mustangs are no longer frequenting the Silk Aerialist bar. That's the first way Rochelle's a villain. The second way is that Rochelle starts sending her threatening floral arrangements. (laughs) I also super did not understand the stalker. And then when it was revealed to be Rochelle, I was like, what? I don't. What am I to take from this? So there's one candidate for the stalker when we first see the flowers and it's this single dad who Poppy is hooked up with. (laughs) Lives down the street. And lives down the street and I was like okay so that kind of sucks that he can't just be like a man like a single father who has a crush like he has to be like psychotic but to me that's more believable than what actually plays out. So funny I had the exact same thought. (laughs) And so that well we're supposed to have that thought. It was a red herring for sure. This is a real Hitchcockian farce. (laughs) Sure But when it was revealed that it was Rochelle, I was like, this isn't as believable as the single dad. Well, hold on, because then this guy who was obnoxious at a bachelor party at the Silk Aerialist place goes to Poppy's new job, which is a restaurant for women by women. Yep. Hers. 
H-E-R-S. But it is one of these wonderful things in romance, which is like an imagining of a work utopia for women and is able to exist because it never scratches the surface of like everyone who works there is attractive and Poppy is still working for tips. Tips aren't just awarded based on excellent customer service. No. Even at hers, a restaurant for women and by women. <laughs> so this bachelor shows up and he's really gross and terrible. And I'm like, aha, he's been sending the flowers. But when Poppy confronts him when he hits on her after negging her for a while, he reveals that it was actually Rochelle. And it's like, why couldn't he just be the one? Yeah. And like, what's Rochelle's endgame here of like dumping TK? It's not like TK is going to jump in to Rochelle or whatever. That felt very half-baked. Very half-baked. Our other villainess kind of doesn't really work out, go anywhere. Another red herring, if you will, is TK's mother. Mm-hmm. Poppy texted him and was like, hey, I'm pregnant. And then he never texted her back. And then she showed up at his house and his mom was like, he doesn't want a baby. Here's $500. Here's $500 for an abortion, which I'm like, that's actually pretty nice. Yeah, I also thought that. It's not like she like forced you to have an abortion. She just gave you $500, you know. <laughs> Yep. Do with it what you will. Poppy does use that money to go to Denver, so it works out. But she's, you know, very overbearing and a little intense, which, you know, never be surprised that any kind of celebrity, anyone who's really good at something doesn't have a super intense mother behind them. Mm-hmm. But she shows up and confronts Poppy and says, you drove my son away from me because a man can only have one woman in his life. She also says this like very Dickinsonian, like you were doing fine in the gutter that you lived in and then you just had to like crawl out of it and fuck up my amazing relationship with my son and I was like what (laughs) boy this feels so outsized for the conversation that should be happening yeah it's true again like very much like monster-in-law like and you do get that moment where he chooses his girlfriend over his mother which yeah always great Always great. When you're in a really long-term relationship, you will likely have a moment when your partner has to choose, you know, their own discomfort with talking to their parents about something. They choose that so that they can make you happy. And that's very satisfying. It is. It feels good. Adversarial. (laughs) It's not a healthy worldview, but it's important. My mom always tells a story about my dad's really good at ironing. And one time they went to see his parents and his mother complimented my mom on being so good at ironing Mm -hmm. and my mom kind of felt it might be a little passive aggressive (laughs) and my dad just said yeah she's very very good at it and like did not say oh I do the ironing you know that's funny and that's you know something my mom remembers to this day because it is significant it is significant I think the thing is is like someone saying like you the person I chose your feelings are just as valid and important to me as the people who created me yes is a very impactful moment so I enjoyed that oh and then there's Dixie who is Dixie queen of the wags the wives and girlfriends of this team who starts off very friendly and then immediately goes cold on Poppy and we discover it's because TK is the hottest guy on the team and even this married woman is gonna compete against Poppy for his affections which was like so strange but like all of the villains are women which it is a device to get TK to move in with her instead of just buying her the expensive security system which he could have done he decides that he has to live with her as well and so it works as a catalyst to get them to live together but now you have this problem of how to solve for the stalker and the fact that the book chooses to make it like a woman was 
pretty strange. Like it is very adversarial. It has a very adversarial understanding of women while also having this incredible community of friends around Poppy. Which I think holding those two things together was actually very strange because you're right. Like all of the bad interactions that she has are either perpetrated by women or like instigated by these women. And then she's also supported and protected and loved on by this other like family she chooses there's this really interesting moment where her friend Vani is very angry on her behalf about TK's bad behavior and she's like well you know your husband works with TK like why are you like defending me so hard and she's like because you're my friend and that guy simply works with my husband like they're fucking colleagues and like you and I are friends and like that was a moment where Poppy got to feel really protected where she's like even if you know TK and I dissolve our romantic relationship I still get to keep this like awesome cadre of ladies and I thought that was good but also like I don't know duh then why make all the villains women like why not make the NFL the villain here like why isn't the coach coming out and being like you have to play or like why isn't the owner coming out and saying something ridiculous they set up that agent as such an asshole oh totally and then it doesn't really go anywhere like that's the other thing is that there are these other popsicle sticks you can paint a mean face on and you always choose the pink popsicle stick the other thing that's interesting about her group of female friends is that this book does kind of resist that other women thing. Her initial friend group is all these like outsiders, right, for the wags. Like, mm-hmm. they're lawyers and been married for a while and they're different. But then she also becomes friends with like the upwardly mobile reality TV star. Yeah, yeah. The super shy, uncomfortable model. Like, it does resist that idea of like, not like other girls and kind of creates this valid space for like all women. I was kind of hoping Sadie, her friend from the aerialist silks place would end up with Bren, the woman who owns hers. Yeah, I did too. That's not the case. But there's this thing where the book is like very generous towards women and then also very like problematic, like very oh my gosh, the reality star when she first meets Poppy walks over and like invites her to become a part of a reality show she's pitching and suggests that Poppy would be interested because she used to be a stripper. Mm -hmm. And the book says things at once like there's nothing wrong with being a stripper and also I'm used to people saying shitty things about me yeah it's like well if there's nothing wrong with being a stripper then why is it a shitty thing to say about you and also talks about prostitutes and uses the word prostitutes and not sex worker and then says not that there's anything wrong with being a prostitute honey get your money and that's like so condescending and also the kind of thing where it's like I don't actually believe this but I know I have to say it yeah exactly and it's weird to have a tag put itself in that position. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody listening that the women who are also villains are also conservative bastions of womanhood. Like TK's mom is like, you're a fucking gold digger. And like, I'm protecting my son from your sex and rock and roll. And and doesn't explicitly say it, but we're from the perspective of Poppy in this text. Poppy suspects it is because she's black. Right. And Dixie is also a big headed, blonde, Texan white woman and she comes across as like a very conservative version of womanhood where she's like I'm going to organize the wives and girlfriends and what we're going to do is like up sip and dip or whatever and like then we'll like organize a food drive once because we care and we have to be seen that we care the villains are 
conservative womanhood. And so like these moments where it's like, I'm not a stripper. Not that there's anything wrong with being a stripper, but also like don't sex shame me. That's one of those moments where like I felt the book trip itself. It's just a really shitty thing to say about me. And it is distracting. Yes. If you don't have that kind of similar perspective, I imagine. Yeah. Sexiest part. The first time they meet outside the club, she's just spilled a tray of drinks on him and exited the scene very quickly. And it's like this dark alley and she's like hyperventilating. And we've spent a ton of time talking about her corset outfit. And like he just like touches her and then they like end up in each other's arms and like he bites her lower lip. And she's like, it's just like when I was 16. And then like they have this incredible makeout session and he's like, where you been? And I was like, that's hot. I didn't like that scene. And it's because of the it's just like when we were in high school thing. (laughs) There are few few experiences in high school I would like to revisit. There are no experiences from high school that I would like to revisit. That's super fair. Like, I think as soon as you're like, it's just like we're 16 again. I'm like, not for me. (laughs) Not for me. That's funny. What was your sexiest part? Oh, man. I like the part where they're in the car and he doesn't know about the kid yet. That's not going to be an issue in this scene, which is nice for me. And he just like starts touching her thigh as they're driving somewhere and they're talking. I really enjoyed that because there is the kind of mediated flirtation happening because he's driving, obviously, and they're within like the very early stages of their relationship. And so everything is kind of tempered in a very electric way. I really enjoyed that. TK was a really good sex up talker. Yes, he was a very good dirty talk in this book. A lot of the sex scenes, especially in the latter half, like really fade to black or like you wake up and they're like sweaty and like breathing heavily. And I was like, but like we had all that good dirty talk. Like, why not put it on the page? Maybe there's only so much that you can manifest. I don't like it when and I think this kind of speaks to the dissonance we were talking about earlier where he gives her like this speech about liking her stretch marks. Yeah. And there's a difference between liking something and it not being a big deal. So like the idea of like the second sex, right, is that you always have to point out when someone's a woman or a female, but you never have to point out if they're a man because that is assumed. And that's what makes being a woman the second sex. And so that's an othering in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with the stretch marks, right? Like because you have to point out that they're sexy, because you have to point them out at all, Means that they're otherized, right? Like it's a particular tipple and therefore not sexy, really. You know what I mean? It makes it sexy in a maybe like a lascivious or fetish way as opposed to just like a part of her overall sexy package. And it got really weird when he's like, I didn't get to see you as pregnant. Like I didn't get to see you gestating my (laughs) human spawn. And like, I think like there's a version of that conversation that I would have found sexier. Like if that scene wasn't their first penetrative sex scene because she's like hey could you turn the lights off and this is the first time they've had sex in a decade and so the fact that he's like are you trying to hide from me no I will not do that thing you're asking me to do right and so like it felt weirdly like I'm gonna walk you through how sexy your body is (sighs) is like I don't ever love that but like I can also see like there's a version of that that I would have seen as sexier if they'd had longer together I think that's like one of the powers of second chance romance where it's like you notice the difference 
difference between the body you knew and the body you now have access to. And like, I think there's a version of that that can be okay. But like in this version where he's like, you're trying to hide from me. Let, like, let me tell you how your maternity has like made you a woman. And I was like, oh, please. I really don't need to hear this from you, man. Any of this oh guy. my God. Please just turn the light off. Could you please just tell me I'm pretty? Like, just tell me. Yeah, like, just is say that, like, is, you are pretty. Don't be like, look at these stretch marks. <laughs> and there was also like this thing where he kind of said like these stretch marks are good because you had a child and as someone who has non-maternal stretch marks I was like come on why are you qualifying it like if you're gonna do it don't qualify it it made me feel bad about my stretch mark <laughs> Ugh, you have stretch marks and you don't have a baby to show for it bleh, bleh. <laughs> yeah fuck you like cool Cool, 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 cool. Cool, 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 cool. Thank you so much. Womancer, no mans. Okay, so here's where the project is kind of making things difficult for me. If someone wanted to read a sports romance, this one all the way. Because I think it's got a really great perspective on the problems of the sport, but also talks about football in a way that I think if you were interested in football, you'd be like, oh, wow, check out this game. Mm -hmm. I did not understand most of it. It sounded like something that would be interesting. And also, you know, there is that little bit of insider information, like learning that the family at a special parking lot was interesting to me. The fact that the players have to stay in a hotel even when they do home games. Yeah, that they're sequestered. I love that. If I had someone in my life who was like, I want to read a football romance. Oh, for sure. I would recommend this. Making it a womance. But if someone was like, I just want to read like a contemporary romance, this would not be my first recommendation. So I guess that makes it a womance. I come down exactly the same. Like I would recommend this before I would recommend Pucked because I think it does a better job dealing with like the messy parts of the sport and also the parts of toxic masculinity that we excuse and rationalize. Like I think this book does a better job of dealing with those problems. But it's like so many of the things that I don't like. Like it's Secret Kid. It's written exclusively in the first person and we never get TK's perspective. Like if I can put my personal stuff aside, which I am working really hard to do I would say yeah I would recommend this before I would recommend Pucked so in that sense Womance but well, now I'm not... like I would recommend Pucked over this because I would get like excited to return to Pucked and I didn't really get that same buzz from this book but I think like it feels wrong to compare it to Pucked yeah for me I think that's fair I mean like they're just like the two sports romance that I can most easily compare other than like the curling romance I read two years ago like we just don't read a ton of sports romance like I think for mass appeal I like I get all the reasons why this is a big deal I get all the reasons why people like it and it's just so many of the things that like I just honestly don't like as a reader and that makes it hard for me to recommend but if I would recommend this to people and that is the structure of woe it's like yeah this is this would be a woe for me I would recommend this to people. You know, and you've talked me out of it. I think it's a no for me. So <laughs> I think it's okay that you and I are having split votes through entropy. I have no problem with that. I think that's actually probably good. That's what I would expect. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's just a split decision on this one. And we'll probably flip flop who's splitting which way. <laughs> yeah, we'll just keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Any parting thoughts about Fumble? I want to give a shout out to the series titles. They've all been great. It's so true. They've so been great. I would say that. Intercepted, fumbled, snapped, 
So good. Those are great. I also loved that it was so on the nose. Like at one point she says that they're playing the Raiders and like the colors for the Mustangs in Denver are blue and orange. Like, well, here's the thing. Okay, I have a question about sports romance, which is like, how close do you have to be before it's copyright? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about this. I think we'll do a bonus kind of final thoughts on sports romance. I think that's a good idea. Okay, cool. So with that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.